What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Johnny Malari. So in this episode, I'm going to give a rundown of all of the news across the MLB over the last few weeks. Some of the things are new news, where it's a player getting traded over the last couple of days. Some of it is old news, like managers getting hired like two or three weeks ago that I didn't get to talk about, so I'll give my thoughts on each of those new managers and their new homes for the next season. So let's start off with the trade from a couple of days ago, and this was a trade that took place earlier this week, and that was Alex Verdugo being traded from the Red Sox to the New York Yankees. Both big pieces from the Mookie Betts trade are now gone. It was Gina Downs and Alex Verdugo, the two big pieces that the Red Sox got back in return from Mookie Betts, and both of them are no longer Boston Red Sox players, unfortunately. After Verdugo was benched this past season due to his lack of hustle, and then weeks later getting benched again for being late to a game, he fell out of favor with Alex Cora. It was only a matter of time that they were going to move on from, whether it was now in the offseason or during the season. I did expect the Red Sox to get rid of him at some point, and my prediction in the free agency episode was that Boston would trade him in the offseason. That ends up being the case. Verdugo's now a New York Yankee. So it's going to be really different seeing him without a beard. Obviously, that's something that we've seen during his days with the Red Sox. He always had a beard, and now he's not going to have one playing for the Yankees, which I think is one of the most ridiculous rules in all sports that you can't have facial hair as a New York Yankee. I know it's a rule they've had for a century now, but at the end of the day, I do think Cameron Mabin, who's a former Yankee, said yesterday, or a couple days ago on Twitter, he said he thinks that deters some players from going to the Yankees since they don't want to shave their facial hair every single day. Maybe that's the case. I'm not really too sure. I didn't play for the New York Yankees, so I'm not really sure what it's like. But I don't know if I were playing for the Yankees, I wouldn't want to shave every single day. Anyways, I thought Verdugo would be traded after his fallout with Alex Cora. Obviously, things just didn't go well this season for the Red Sox. Verdugo being benched for lack of hustle at one point during the season, and then weeks later getting benched again for being late to get to Fenway Park, were both signs that the Red Sox would get rid of him at some point. And after benching him for the second time, Alex Cora called it his worst moment as a manager. And clearly, you could tell Craig Brezzo talked to Alex Cora about this because you're not going to trade Alex Verdugo just to do it, even though he only had one year left on his deal and expiring contract. Still a good player. I know, obviously, he got very hot and very cold at times. But was the Red Sox hottest hitter at some points over the last few years? Sometimes the coldest as well. But I'll always be a big fan of his. Even when he was struggling, he always had a clutch hitting him. And he came up big in some of the biggest moments for the Red Sox. was a big reason the Red Sox made it to the ALCS in 2021. But I don't think this happens without Breslau talking to Alex Cora. And obviously Alex Cora fell out of favor with him. I do love the swagger that Alex Verdugo brings to the game of baseball. And I'm wishing him nothing but the best of luck in the Bronx. Am I happy with this deal? No, I want Verdugo to stay with the Red Sox. I'm a big Alex Verdugo fan. I'm always going to support him. Love the swagger and the energy he brought to the game. But considering everything that happened this past season with Alex Cora, I figured Verdugo would be gone at some point. I knew Verdugo would be traded at some point. So I'm not shocked. Am I happy? No. Am I shocked? No. In return, the Red Sox got three right-handed pitches. Richard Fitz, who is the Yankees' number 12 prospect. Greg Weissert, who is a major league pitcher for the Yankees over the past two seasons. And then the Red Sox also got Nicholas Judice in that trade as well, a right-handed pitching prospect for the Yankees. So the Yankees sent three right-handed pitchers to the Red Sox. That was a weakness for the Red Sox was right-handed pitching, especially in the farm system. So that's the reason the Red Sox ended up making this deal. Eric Sardugo is still the best player in this trade, in my opinion. But you're getting back three right-handed pitches. We'll see if any of them pan out. 28-year-old Greg Weiser did pitch in the major leagues the last couple seasons for the New York Yankees. A 4.6 ERA over 29 appearances over the last two years. And then Richard Fitz is the number 12 prospect for the Yankees. He's now gone 18-13 with a 3.57 ERA and 49 minor league starts over the past couple of years. And then Judice is only 22 years old was just selected in the eighth round of the MLB draft this past June. I think Fitz is probably the best player in this deal that the Red Sox got back in return. I think Verdugo is the best overall player in this deal, but for the Red Sox return, I think Fitz is probably the best overall player. Hoping he pans out after watching his film, 
Looks like he could be a potential gem for the Red Sox rotation, maybe in the next couple seasons. So the Yankees made another move over the last couple of days that was trading for superstar Juan Soto in a trade with the San Diego Padres. The Yankees were 25th in runs scored last season, despite having a top three payroll in baseball. So they had to go out and make a move and try to fix their offense. Aaron Judge, they can't just rely on him. Especially with Aaron Judge being injury prone over the last couple of seasons, the Yankees need him to stay healthy, and they also needed another person in that lineup to try to carry the load on offense. And that's why they ended up making this move and getting Juan Soto. In return, they got Juan Soto and Trent Grisham, two outfielders from the Padres. The Padres receive, in return, right-handed pitcher Michael King from a Boston College pitcher, right-handed pitcher Johnny Brito, right-handed pitching prospect Drew Thorpe, who is the number 99 overall prospect on MLB.com. The Padres also got right-handed pitching prospect Randy Vasquez, the number 13 prospect for the Yankees. And then they also got the Yankees catcher over the last couple of seasons, Kyle Higashioka. So overall in this trade, the Yankees had to give up two prospects and three major league players. In return, the Padres sent Juan Soto and Trent Christian to the Yankees. If you look at what they're getting in return for all of those prospects and players, the Yankees are getting a three-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slugger, and a player who's very patient at the plate in Juan Soto. He led the major leagues this past season in walks with 132. I believe that's his third time leading the major leagues in walks. He also was sixth in the NL MVP race last season. Good bounce-back season last year for Juan Soto. I still think he's overrated, but with that being said, I still don't want to see the Yankees adding too much talent. Don't want to see them adding power to that lineup at all, especially with the short right field at Yankee Stadium. Over the last six years, Juan Soto's been in the major leagues with four and a half of those seasons being with the Nationals and then one and a half of those years being with the Padres. Overall in his career, he has a 284 batting average, a 524 slugging percentage, and 160 home runs with 483 runs batted in and 779 career games. So obviously when you look at those stats, obviously a lot of power, a lot of talent. He actually won a home run derby as well. Pure talent, pure power. I do think, though, he's a little bit overrated. With it being said, though, like I said, still don't want to see the Yankees adding talent to their lineup. That's obviously a big worry for the Red Sox. I don't think the Red Sox really have to counter this too much, although I think Soto is a good player. The Yankees have a lot of holes than just one guy in the lineup can fix. Like we saw last year, Aaron Judge came back healthy, and everybody expected the Yankees lineup to figure things out and just get back on track and make the playoffs. That wasn't the case. One guy can't change a lineup in the game of baseball. Can it help a lineup and maybe take it over the top? Yes. Is it going to fix all of the problems, though, for the Yankees and the guys that are aggressing there, like DJ LeMayhew, like Anthony Rizzo, like Giancarlo Stanton? Probably not. Those three guys, obviously, were top hitters over the past probably four or five seasons, but they are on the decline as well. Those three guys are on the decline, whether it's injuries or just struggling at the plate. Those three guys are on the decline, and that's why I think one guy can't fix this Yankees lineup. A couple summers ago now, in July of 2022, Juan Soto turned down a 15-year, $440 million extension from the Nationals, and the Nationals ended up trading him after that, saying, we're not going to be able to keep this guy no matter what. We just offered him the biggest contract in the history of our franchise. He said no. So the Nationals front office and their general manager, Mike Rizzo, they were left with no option but to trade Juan Soto. They knew he wasn't going to sign an extension, especially if they're off him $440 million and he said no. They said, let's trade him with two and a half years of control, get back a good amount of prospects in return, build our farm system, and try to build for the future. And that's what they did, and the trade really worked out for Washington. They got a haul back in return in exchange for Juan Soto a couple years ago now. So a big question around this trade is whether or not the Yankees are going to be able to re-sign him after the season's over. He's not going to sign a deal mid-season. Scott Boris is his agent. They're not going to go during the season and try to negotiate. They're going to wait for the end of the season to try to get the top dollar on the market. I think it's a one-year deal for the Yankees with Soto, a free agent after the season's over, and he's going to demand the most money on the open market. So it's essentially a rental, I'd say. Probably more likely to be a rental than not. But I respect the Yankees for making this move. They need to go out, add to that lineup. They knew they weren't going to just be able to run it back with last year's lineup and try to figure things out that way. They need to add a big bat. 
I always respect a team that goes all in and tries to make a big move, and that's what the Yankees did here getting Juan Soto. We'll see how things work out for them with that. The Yankees didn't have to give up as much as I thought they would have. They did lose some pitching depth in that trade. Michael King, former Boston College pitcher, was great for them over the last couple seasons. Last year, 4-8 record with a 2.75 ERA in 49 games, making 9 starts at 6 saves and 1.146 whip with 127 strikeouts and 104.2 innings pitched. In his career with the Yankees, he was there for 5 seasons, a 3.38 ERA, a 13-17 record, and 115 appearances, making 19 starts with 282 strikeouts and 247 and two-thirds innings pitched. Obviously, very good numbers there overall. So in return, the Padres are getting help in their rotation. Also going to Johnny Brito, another pitcher as well. I think it's a solid deal for the Padres. I think they maybe could have got more in return. If Soto said he was going to re-sign with whatever team traded for him, but considering it's just a one-year rental for now, you're not going to get back as much in return, and obviously Soto isn't going to sign a deal right now. So whatever team's trading for him is getting just one guaranteed season, that's why you're not going to get as much in return for him. That's why the Nationals got so much back in return from a couple seasons ago, because he had two and a half years of control. That's obviously a big reason they got so much back in return with a lot of prospects in that deal with San Diego in July of 2022. And even though I do think Juan Soto's overrated a little bit, obviously a great talent, one of the best talents in the game of baseball, but I still think he's overrated. I think both those things can be true. The short right field for the Yankees makes him so dangerous in that lineup, he's probably going to be mashing in Yankee Stadium. Mashing. And like I said, though, the Yankees have a lot more holes than just one player could fix. DJ LeMahieu, Anthony Rizzo, Jacob Stanton are all declining, in my opinion. And it's obviously tough trying to keep Aaron Judge healthy. So that's obviously a big thing for that Yankees lineup. Can Aaron Judge stay healthy? And can the rest of those guys try to get back on track and try to turn back time a little bit? As for the Padres, this was the right idea for them trading him. Even though they didn't get back as much return as I thought they would, they gave up a ton to get Soto a couple summers ago. And with their inability to pay plays at the end of this past season, which forced them to get a loan to try to pay contracts out for the rest of this last season, it's only right for them to move on from one of these guys, whether it's Soto, Bogats, Tatis, Machado. They had to move on from one of those guys. Like I said in my free agency predictions, one of those guys would be gone. And I figured Soto would be the one to go, and that ends up being the case. So now I'm going to transition and talk about the biggest free agent in all of baseball over the last century, probably, I'd say. One of the biggest free agents in all of sports history. Shohei Otani is a free agent. He's probably going to make his decision some point this weekend. Even as close as today, I saw a tweet from John Morosi. There's a chance he does have his decision by today. Seems like once he signs, I'd say the free agency market is going to really take off. A lot of guys are just waiting for Shohei to set the pace on the market. A lot of teams are looking for Shohei to be the guy to sign. So once Shohei's gone, teams will pivot to other guys. But as of right now, everyone's priority for the most part is trying to get Shohei Otani in their team's respective uniforms. And that's why a lot of free agents are waiting to sign. So once Shohei does sign, I think free agency will really take off. A lot of buzz around Shohei right now is with the Toronto Blue Jays. But the way things stand right now, I think he ends up with one of these three teams. The Dodgers, the Giants, or the Angels. A couple days ago, I was leaving San Francisco in an eight-year, $475 million deal with up to $530 million in incentives, depending on if he pitches or not. But my thoughts have changed. My thoughts have changed. My final three two days ago... It was Giants, Dodgers, Angels. Now I've changed how I felt about that. Right now, I'd say it's Angels, Giants, Dodgers. Not many people are thinking that the Angels have a chance to get Shohei back, but I think they have a better chance of people giving them credit for. The Angels organization gives Shohei the leeway to DH as much as he wants. His trainers and his transit EP are already there in Anaheim. And he also is dedicated to his diet, to his routine, and the Angels have no problem with letting him do whatever he wants on a daily basis. Whether it's showing up to practice and not doing batting practice, whether it's giving him an extra day off in between starts, if that's what he wants when he does return to pitching. And you also have to factor in, he picked the Angels six years ago on this day for a reason. 
And even though the Angels have struggled during the tenure of having Mike Trout and Shohei Otani together, it's a cycle of rebuilding, struggling, and then turning things around and getting back on top. Look at the Rangers. Look at the Diamondbacks. Two years ago, they were two of the worst teams in baseball. Then they both just faced off in the World Series this past October. So anything's possible. The Angels are going to figure things out at some point. Whether it's with Shohei Otani or not, who knows. But if Shohei goes back to the Angels, I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised. They give him the leeway to do whatever he wants, from practicing to pitching to DHing. The Angels are giving him as much leeway as any team is in the open market. And obviously their front office trusts Shohei Otani. Perry Manazian, this is a make-or-break year for him. He obviously knows, I'm going to have to try to keep Shohei Otani in an Angels uniform. And if I don't, I'm going to have to go make a splash on the free agency market, whether it's getting Yamamoto, who I think the Yankees are now interested in getting. I think they're probably going to try to add to their pitching rotation. I don't think they're going to get him. I think the Mets are going to get Yamamoto, but the Yankees are going to definitely be in the mix there. But as for Shohei Otani, the Angels know that's their number one priority. And if they don't go out and get him, Manasian knows he's going to have to make a couple big splashes on the free agency market. Since he's up for contract after the season's over, the way things stand right now, he's not going to be back in Anaheim if the Angels don't turn things around. But I think the Angels have a good chance of bringing Shohei back. I really do. Maybe they give him a little bit of reins to recruit who he wants to come play in Anaheim with him. If the Angels want him back, they're probably going to have to do that. Like a LeBron James effect where you say, yeah, you can just bring whoever you want. You can recruit whatever players you want here, and we'll figure out a way to get them. The Angels give Shohei Otani the most autonomy, and that's why I think they have a good chance of bringing him back. Shohei Otani loves his routine during the week, loves his routine during the offseason, while he's pitching as well. And the Angels give him so much leeway and freedom. And I read a tweet today from an Angels fan. He said, Shohei Otani is one of the most loyal players and faithful players in the game of baseball. And I agree with that. Shohei tried to play this past season with a torn ligament in his elbow. He was still trying to hit for the rest of the season. He didn't want to let his teammates down. He is a very loyal player. And even if he doesn't end up back with the Angels, I'm sure he's considering it a lot more than people are giving him credit for. People are not expecting him to go back to Anaheim. But I think he's considering it a lot more than people are talking about. So the way things stand right now, where I think Shohei Otani ends up, I'm going to say Angels, Giants, Dodgers. One of the main things with Shohei during free agency, he said he doesn't want teams to go out and talk about their meetings together. He doesn't want anybody to know who he met with during free agency. And one thing that the Dodgers did over the past couple of days, Dave Robertson, manager, said they met with Shohei Otani. And that was a big mistake. Two days ago, my breakdown of where I think Shohei Otani was going to end up, it was 33% with the Dodgers, 30% with the Giants, 25% with the Angels, 7% with the Blue Jays, and 5% elsewhere between the Cubs, Rangers, Mets, Red Sox, Reds, whoever else it may be. The way things currently stand right now, though, I'm changing that. Like I said, it's changed over the last couple of days, my feelings about this whole situation. I'd say right now, there's a 35% chance he ends up back in Anaheim. Then I'd say a 33% chance he ends up back with the Giants. I'd say a 25% chance with the Dodgers, a 4% chance with the Blue Jays, and I'd say 3% elsewhere between the Cubs, Rangers, Mets, Red Sox, Orioles. The Orioles, I thought, were a potential destination for him at the trade deadline this past season. The Orioles have a lot of money to spend. They've been neglecting that. I wouldn't be surprised if they're involved in this whole situation. Nobody's reported that, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Orioles are involved here and they at least met with Shohei Otani. That'd be a good destination for him. That's a young team on the rise that's going to be contending for years to come. And Shohei's going to get an 8-10 to 10 year deal, and he's looking to win a championship. The Orioles could be a good destination for him, but I think they probably have lesser chances just considering they've never been as active on the open market signing big free agents over the last five years. So there's all my thoughts about the Shohei Otani situation, all the rumors going around about him. I think Anaheim has a good chance of getting him back. I really do. I'd love to see him in a Red Sox uniform. I'd love to see him in a Dodgers uniform. But I'd be happy to see him back in an Angels uniform. Yes, I know the Angels have struggled over the last few years with them. They haven't made the playoffs with them at all. 
and obviously he deserves better. But they're going to figure things out at some point. They're going to figure things out at some point. And Shohei just seems comfortable in Anaheim. And if he's making the decision today, I wouldn't be surprised if he's back with the Angels. I really wouldn't be. So while I'm talking about the Angels, they just hired their manager a couple weeks ago now. That was Ron Washington, who just signed a two-year contract to be the manager of the Angels. Absolutely love this pickup by them. He's a very well-respected person in the industry, has been around baseball a long time, and knows a lot about the game. He hasn't been a manager since 2014 in the MLB, but in eight years with Texas, he had a 521 win percentage, an 18-16 record in the postseason, and made it to back-to-back World Series in 2010 and 2011. So he's had some success in the postseason. That's something the Angels haven't had, is any success in the postseason with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. But that can all change. And they're getting a manager that's very well-respected and loved in the industry. And here's a clip from three weeks ago with Perry Manazian and Ron Washington talking at his introductory press conference in Anaheim. Here's a clip. Hopefully it gets you fired up. You can tell this guy is all about just winning baseball and being a leader. And that's what you can tell from this clip and obviously his whole career in the major leagues. So here's Ron Washington talking at his press conference. Couldn't be more excited to introduce Ron Washington. I think the Angels are definitely better today than they were yesterday. Welcome, Ron. Now I'm legitimate. I'm so overthrilled that I have this opportunity to lead. I'm a natural bone leader. I've been leading ever since I can remember. I've always been a part of winning. I don't know anything else but winning. We're going to be about it. We're not going to talk about it. Our whole focus is going to be to run the West down. And you can take that to the bank and deposit it. I'm so excited. I, I just couldn't wait to get back into a leadership role. Because as I say, that's what I do. We got to teach every single day. It never stops. We got to make them understand just because you failed doesn't mean that you are a failure. You can fail today and you can make up for that failure tomorrow. So like you can tell from the clip, he's a natural born leader, very well spoken as well. You can tell he knows how to get the locker room going and get everyone fired up. I think it's a great hire by the Angels. They need to go out and get an experienced manager. I did like Phil Nevin. They just potted ways this past offseason, but it's probably for the better at the end of the day. He had some questionable decisions over the years with switching relievers mid-game. But I did love the fire that he brought to the game in the locker room. Obviously cared for the guys. Was always fired up and always defended them. But at the end of the day, the Angels had to go out and get a new manager. That was just a reality. Perry Manazian, it's the last year of his contract. It's a make-or-break year for him. He's made it clear the Angels are not going to trade Mike Trout under any circumstance. Obviously, going out and getting a new manager is a big step as well. And I still think the Angels have a good chance at getting Shohei Otani back. I really do. They're going to be aggressive since it's Manazian's last guaranteed season, whether it's getting Otani back or not. They're going to go out and get a big person on the free agency market. I really believe that. And like Ron Washington said, you could fail today, but you can make up for that tomorrow. And he's right. At the end of the day, failures can turn into success if you let it turn into lessons. If you let a failure turn into a lesson, it can turn into success overnight, over time, And like Ron Washington said, he's all about winning. And I'm happy for the Angels. I think that's a great pickup for them. Baseball's a process and failure's temporary. Two great quotes there from the Angels' new manager. And that all came from a clip from their Instagram. So other news across baseball over the last month, the Oakland Athletics will be moving to Vegas. It's been talked about for now a couple seasons. So it's not really too shocking to anybody. The owner of the A's, John Fish, was trying to find a new stadium in Oakland for years. But it's been clear over the last year that a deal wasn't going to happen. So they were going to end up moving the franchise. This is actually the third professional sports franchise to leave Oakland. The second to go from Oakland to Vegas with the Raiders jumping ship a couple years ago. And now the A's as well. Unanimous vote by owners. So 
Every owner in the MLB felt like this was the best idea. This is the second relocation for the MLB over the last 50 seasons, with the Exos being the last one in 2005. Vegas' stadium won't be ready until 2027. The lease of the Oakland Coliseum, though, is up after the season's over. So there's going to be an interesting decision for the A's after the season ends. So at least one more year in Oakland, and then we'll see where they are a year from now in the offseason. Since John Fisher bought the A's in 2005, their payroll is ranked in the bottom half of baseball every single season. And I'm going to give a rundown from 2005 to 2023. 2005, 19th in payroll. 2006, 19th. 2007, 18th. 2008, 27th. 2009, 27th. 2010, 26th. 2011, 23rd. 2012, 30th. 2013, 27th payroll in baseball. 2014th, 23rd. 2015th, 26th. 2016, 27th in baseball. 2017, 28th in the game of baseball. 2018, 28th in the MLB. 2019, 26th. 2020, 26th, 2021, 24th, 2022, 30th, 2023 for the second year in a row, dead last in payroll in the game of baseball. So their recipe, just trying to be a money ball team, worked out early in the Billy Bean days, but the last couple of seasons, it hasn't worked. Being the 30th payroll in baseball the last two years has not worked for Oakland at all. And that's a reason they've been one of the worst teams in the game of baseball. And that's a reason they've been struggling. Struggling as a team, win-loss record-wise, struggling to get fans in the stadium. I wrote a paper just about a year ago now in my business a sports class at BC, and I ran a regression on teams' money they spend on their payroll, their attendance rate, and their win percentage. And all of it's very correlated. The Oakland A's spend no money on their payroll, basically, so they're not bringing in as much talent as teams around them. They're not being aggressive in free agency. They're losing talent every single year. When they do have a good play, they trade it away for the most part. That ends up resulting in worse win-loss records, and that ends up resulting in less fan attendance at every game. It's a cycle, and it's all definitely related. Over the last four seasons, the A's had Elvis Andrews, Stephen Piscotti, Sean Murphy, Stephen Vogt, Matt Chapman, Matt Elson, Mark Hanna, Starling Mate, Chris Bassett, Sean Manaya, Frankie Montas, Jed Lowry. They've had so much talent over the last three or four seasons. But for the most part, they traded a lot of those guys away or let them go in free agency. They let those guys go and without giving them big contracts, either traded them or just let them walk in free agency. And that just is something you can't do. If you want to be a winning franchise, you have to keep your homegrown talent. You have to keep the stars on your team, like Sean Murphy, like Matt Elson, like Matt Chapman. Letting those guys just walk or decide to trade them, neither one of those are good decisions by the A's. And even though they've struggled as a franchise the last few seasons, since the A's got to Oakland in 1968, they've won 4,545 games since arriving to Oakland in 1968. That's the sixth most in the game of baseball since 1968. They have four World Series since then, and the only other teams with four World Series since 1968 are the Yankees with seven and the Red Sox with four. So even with the past failures over the last few seasons, the A's did have some success there in Oakland. And if you look at cities with the most championships among the big four sports, since 1968, it's L.A., Boston, New York, and then Oakland. L.A., Boston, New York, and then Oakland. So it was a good place for sports to thrive. And I know fans weren't going to games, but if the A's decided to be a little bit more competitive, maybe had an owner that was dedicated to try to keep them in Oakland, maybe their fan attendance would have been better. Who knows? There's a lot of reasons they're leaving Oakland. But their owner, John Fisher, didn't do much to keep loyalty with those fans in Oakland. 
Anyways, now I'm going to move on to talk about the San Francisco Giants, who just hired Bob Melvin a couple weeks ago to be their new manager. He left the Padres with one year left on his deal. He had a toxic relationship with Padres general manager A.J. Preller, according to reports. So it made sense that they'd both move on from each other, and that's why Preller's still with the Padres, and obviously Melvin goes to San Francisco. This past season, the Padres were third place in the NL West after an 82-80 and 80 season, and that's even with a payroll that was $258 million, third highest in the major leagues, and they still didn't even make the playoffs and were third in the division last year. And that's with a strong finish to the end of the season. They won 14 of the last 16 games and had a chance in the postseason towards the end of the year. So now Bob Melvin will be replacing Gabe Kapler, who was fired with, I think, three or four games left in the season. San Francisco moved on from him just at the end of the season. Kapler's record in San Francisco was 295 to 248. 295 wins to 248 losses over three and a half seasons, just about including a franchise record, 107 wins in 2021. Bob Melvin, though, obviously a very well-respected person in the industry, three-time manager of the year, has won the award actually in both leagues. He was 171 and 153 with the Padres over the last few seasons, and he had a career 516 win percentage in 20 seasons in the MLB between Arizona, Oakland, Seattle, and San Diego with eight postseason appearances. So obviously a very well-respected career and obviously a veteran in the industry. So good pickup there for San Francisco. So now I'm going to transition and talk about the Red Sox, who hired Craig Breslow to be the chief baseball officer probably about a month or so ago now, maybe a little bit more than that. He's a 13-year big leaguer, won the World Series with the Red Sox back in 2013. And of the things he noted during his press conference, he said the Sox's biggest needs are pitching, right-handed bats, second base, and obviously defense. Red Sox were very much up there in errors this past season in the game of baseball, so that's something that has to get better. He said he doesn't see financial resources as a limiting factor, and also noted about his relationship with Alex Cora, he said it should be a partnership in which we're influencing each other. And that ended up being the case. The Red Sox traded Verdugo, and I'm sure Alex Cora was a big reason behind that. So if you look at Breslow's career in the game of baseball, working on the business side, in 2023, he was the assistant GM and senior vice president of pitching for the Cubs. He worked remotely for the most part from Newton during his tenure with the Cubs in their front office. So the convenience of working for the Red Sox is obviously huge for him. In 2021 and 2022, he was the assistant GM and vice president of pitching. In 2020, he was the director of pitching and special assistant to the president and general manager. And then in 2019, he was the director of strategic initiatives for the Cubs. So if you look at what he's stepping into, he's stepping into a lot better of a situation right now than Hyam Bloom did when he stepped in back in 2019. Honestly, I think Hyam Bloom was the fall guy for the Red Sox. He was paid to lower the payroll, build up the farm system, and then was fired in preparation for someone like Breslow to step into a better situation with the farm system all set up for him and the Red Sox ready to spend some money. The Red Sox just lost nine guys to the Rule 5 draft, which just proves that teams are actually wanting the guys that the Red Sox can't protect. And that's a credit to High and Bloom. All those guys he brought in over the last few seasons and minor league deals and drafting guys, people wanted those guys. And that's why the Red Sox lost nine guys to the Rue 5 draft. Mid-season this past year, MLB Pipeline had the Red Sox at 16th in the MLB and farm system. Fangraphs had the Red Sox at 4th mid-season. And then Baseball America had the Red Sox at 5th in the major leagues and farm system. And like Jeff Passan said after Bloom was fired, the Red Sox farm system and their position players are very much Orioles-like and a lot better than people give them credit for, which is a great compliment to High and Bloom. One thing that's a worry to me is that it took 10 candidates to decline the Red Sox interview for them to find their chief baseball officer. A lot of people didn't want this Red Sox job, whether it's because they didn't want to relocate, whether it's because they liked the position they were already in, or they already saw the Red Sox get rid of Dave Dombrowski and get rid of High and Bloom each within four seasons just about. So now I'm going to take a look into the High and Bloom tenure, which the Mookie Betts trade is the main way High and Bloom's tenure is going to be looked at. 
And even though the Red Sox should have got back more in return for him, which I agree with most people that say the Red Sox should have got back more in return, that's obviously a given. They probably should have got back a couple of very good prospects back in return, which I know Gita Downs was one of the top prospects in the game of baseball at that point. Obviously, Alex Verdugo was a young stuff for that Dodgers lineup. But considering what the Nationals got in return for Juan Soto, which one thing I want to mention, Juan Soto had two and a half years of control left, so that's obviously a big reason Washington got a lot back in return. But Mookie Betts is a superstar. The Red Sox should have got back more in return than just Gita Downs, Alex Verdugo, and Connor Wong. So the Padres-Nationals deal, the Red Sox probably weren't going to get that back in return since it was just one year Mookie Betts versus two and a half years guaranteed of Juan Soto. But the Red Sox probably should have got back in return what the Padres just got for the Juan Soto deal to the Yankees. Both Juan Soto and Mookie Betts had one year guaranteed left in the deal before they're set up to be free agents. With that being said, Mookie Betts signed a contract extension with the Dodgers before even playing a game. So the Red Sox should have got back more in return. Just like the Padres just got back in return for Juan Soto, the Red Sox should have got back a similar amount in return for Mookie Betts. But keep in mind this. The Red Sox traded half of David Price's contract in that deal. So that's a big reason the Red Sox got less in return. So essentially, it was a David Price salary dump in Mookie Betts for one season for Alex Rodugo, Connor Wong, and Gita Downs. And that's one guaranteed season of Mookie Betts. Obviously, he ends up signing a big extension with the Dodgers before playing a game. But they did get one guaranteed season of him in that 2020 season. But when I look at this deal, I still don't think it was High and Bloom's decision to trade Mookie Betts. Was it on him for what the Red Sox got back in return? Yeah, I mean, he made the decision to say yes to the trade. He probably should have tried to get more. That's obviously in hindsight. Everyone's vision in hindsight is always going to be 2020 perfect. We're always going to look back and say we should have done this or should have done that in a certain situation. And at the end of the day, we can't go backwards. We can't go backwards. you got to make a decision at that time what you think is best. And at that time, that's maybe what High and Bloom thought was best in return. He maybe thought Gina Downs was going to pan out and thought that Alex Verdugo would be a lifelong Red Sox. And that obviously ends up not being the case. The only piece remaining in that deal for the Red Sox is Connor Wong, who the Red Sox really wouldn't have any expectations for when they traded him. He was just really a throw-in in that deal. But I still don't think it's on High and Bloom for that trade. That's an ownership of saying, let's cut payroll, this is your job, cut the payroll, build the farm system, and figure things out. And at the end of the day, High and Bloom did his job. He built the farm system up, the Red Sox did have an ALCS appearance in 2021, even with a lower payroll, and they found a way to get some bargain contracts over the last few seasons. Over the High and Bloom tenure, which I'm cutting out 2020 since that was a shortened season, so payrolls were all prorated. In 2021, the Red Sox had the sixth highest payroll in the game of baseball at $207 million. 2022, the fifth highest payroll at $236 million, but that's because it included Xander Bogots, Nathan Valdi, and J.D. Martinez all making good money. 2023, though, with those three guys gone, the Red Sox had the 12th payroll in baseball with $223 million. But the guys that High and Bloom brought in over the past year in free agency a year ago all contributed... It were big plays for the Red Sox this past season. And that's Justin Turner, Adam Duvall, Kenley Jansen, James Paxton, and Masataki Yoshida. All of them contributed and all contributed great amounts, especially when you look at their price and what the Red Sox got them for. But when you look at the High and Bloom tenure with the Red Sox, I think he was the fall guy for the Red Sox. Was everything High and Bloom did perfect? No. Obviously, he made some mistakes. Every general manager is going to make mistakes. Look at San Francisco, the 49ers. A great team set up there. George Kittle, Debo Samuel, got Christian McCaffrey, have Brandon Ayuk, have Fred Warner on defense, have Dre Greenlaw. They obviously have a lot of talent on that San Francisco team, but they made mistakes too along the way. They trade up for Trey Lance in the 2021 NFL Draft, and they end up owning that mistake and saying, yeah, it didn't work out, and they move on to Brock Purdy. And that's the reason they traded Trey Lance this past offseason. So every general manager is going to make a mistake. Not everything's going to be perfect. No one's going 100 for 100 from the field. You're going to make a mistake. 
And that's what being a general manager is all about. Taking a big shot, taking a big risk. Because you're never going to get a big success or a big reward without taking a big risk. You're going to have to lose a little to try to gain a little. So High and Bloom's tenure with the Red Sox wasn't perfect. Obviously missed on some things. The Andrew Benatendi trade didn't work out. And some other trades as well. Like trading Hunter Renfro for Jackie Bradley Jr. But at the end of the day, when I look at his tenure, I think he was the fall guy for the Red Sox. I really do. He's a bright, young baseball mind, and I'm sure it's going to be only a matter of time until he's back in the front office somewhere. He's probably just better suited working for a franchise that's a smaller market, working on lower payrolls, trying to find gems for less money, and trying to work through the farm system and drafting play as well. That's what he did when he was with Tampa Bay, and that's probably where he's going to end up, something similar like that, working for a small market franchise and trying to build up from the bottom. He tried to do that with the Red Sox, trying to spend some less money along the way, and I think he was the fall guy for the Red Sox. I really do. I think it's more in John Henry for why the Red Sox are at where they're at. He didn't want to keep Mookie Betts. He didn't want to sign Mookie Betts to that contract. I truly believe the Red Sox got rid of him to try to lower the payroll and get under the luxury tax. That's a reality. I really believe that. So that's more on John Henry. High and Bloom was just doing his job, trying to lower the payroll, get under the luxury tax, and try to compete with that. That's on John Henry. Anyways, the last thing I'm going to mention is Craig Council just went to the Chicago Cubs over the last month. He is their new manager now. David Ross was fired. Ross was honestly a good manager. It seemed like he was a great leader as well. Played for the Cubs during his career. Won a World Series with them. But his 480 win percentage in four seasons, an 83-79 record this past season, it did make him expendable. And they obviously want to get a better guy to be their manager. And that's not an indictment against David Ross. Wasn't his fault at the end of the day. When they got rid of Javi Baez, Chris Bryant, and Anthony Rizzo, they lost a lot of their core and a lot of their offense, and that obviously set them up to rebuild. I don't think David Ross was the issue there. Obviously, they had a good season this past year, 83 and 79. Not many people expected that, but it is a business. And now Craig Council left Milwaukee to be the new manager now with the Chicago Cubs. He was a free agent manager, and he ended up saying he wanted a new challenge in his words, so that's why he ends up going to Chicago. And Council with the Brewers, he was very successful there. Very successful. Five postseason births in the last six seasons. Won the division title in 2018, 2021, and 2023. And even though this past season they had a lot of injuries, they still won 92 games this past year. And they had a 531 win percentage in nine seasons with them. Just a 7-12 record in the postseason, but they were a lot more successful with him than they were before him. Before Craig Council got there, the Brewers made the playoffs just four times. They made the playoffs five times in the last six seasons. And they had above 500 record in six of nine seasons with Craig Council as their manager. So the Cubs obviously saw him on the open market. So we got to go out and get him. And they end up giving him a big contract, five-year deal, over $40 million. And he is now the highest-paid manager in the game of baseball. So one last thing I want to mention before closing the episode is the MLB draft lottery that just took place a couple days ago. This was now the second MLB draft lottery, which the MLB implemented this in the new CBA a couple years ago to try to eliminate the desire to tank. They got rid of the inverse order of win-loss record to try to encourage teams to try to still win games and discourage them from tanking. So the first six picks of the MLB draft are set out with a lottery system. And that's to discourage tanking, like I said. So all 18 non-playoff teams had a chance at the first overall pick. So once the first six picks are taken and figured out through the lottery, picks 7 through 18 fall in line with the pre-lottery odds of the non-playoff teams. That comes from MLB.com. With that being said, 7 through 18 are basically just flipped in order from lowest win percentage to highest win percentage from those teams that didn't make the playoffs, 7 through 18. And then after that, for teams 19 through 30, it's based on where they finished in the playoffs. So heading into the lottery, the Athletics, Royals, and Rockies all had an 18.3% chance at the first overall pick. So if the Athletics had 18.3% chance, 
The Royals had an 18.3% chance, and the same thing with the Rockies. Three worst records in baseball this past season. 309 win percentage for the A's, 346 win percentage for the Royals, and 364 win percentage for the Rockies. Then after that, 14.7% for the White Sox, 8.3% chance for the Cardinals, 6.1% chance for the Angels, 4.3% chance for the Mets, 3% chance for the Pirates, 2% chance for the Guardians, who actually ended up with the first overall pick, 1.6% chance for the Tigers, 1.2% chance for the Red Sox, 1% chance for the Giants, 0.9% chance for the Reds, who actually ended up with the second overall pick, 0.7% chance for the Padres, 0.6% chance for the Yankees, 0.4% chance for the Cubs, 0.2% chance for the Mariners, and 0% chance for the Nationals, who actually had a 438 win percentage this past season, but they were ineligible for a lottery pick, and that's because they were a payer club, and teams that give rather than receive revenue-sharing dollars are not allowed to be selected in consecutive draft lotteries. So that's the reason the Nationals were not in the MLB draft lottery for the season, even though they're the fifth worst overall record in baseball this past season. They were ineligible due to being a payer club since they're giving rather than receiving revenue-sharing dollars. So this is how it broke down. The Guardians have the first overall pick, even though they had just a 2% chance heading into the lottery. They end up with the first overall pick. The Reds have the second pick. The Rockies have the third pick. The Athletics have the fourth pick. The White Sox have the fifth pick. And the Royals have the sixth pick. So that's a breakdown of teams one through six in the draft lottery. And then after that, it's just an inverse of win percentage for teams from worst win percentage to best win percentage. So with the seventh overall pick, you have the Cardinals, eighth overall pick, Angels, ninth, the Pirates, 10th, the Nationals, the 11th, the Tigers, 12th, the Red Sox, which that's a good spot there, middle of the first round. I'd love to see the Red Sox go out and get Mike Sorota from Northeastern. He's going to be a first round pick, definitely going to be a high pick in the MLB draft. Excited to see where he ends up, and the Red Sox would be a great home for him. 13th overall pick, we have the Giants, 14th overall pick, Cubs, 15th, Mariners, 16th, Marlins, 17th, Brewers, and 18th, Rays. If you look at the draft lottery, though, teams that got kind of screwed over, the Royals. They end up with the sixth pick. They had an 18.3% chance with the first overall pick. The same thing goes to the Athletics. 18.3% chance with the first overall pick. They end up with the fourth. And one team that really lucked out, the Guardians. Just a 2% chance with the first overall pick. They end up with it. The Reds didn't have a high percent chance to get the first overall pick. They had a 0.9% chance at the number one overall selection. And they end up getting the second overall pick. But this was a good way for the MLB to try to figure out a way to discourage tanking. And I think this works out. Even teams that were trying to win this past season, like the Reds, who had a 506 win percentage, they end up with a second overall pick. And a team like the Guardians, who had a 469 win percentage and had probably just about the 10th chance at the first overall pick heading into the lottery, end up with the first overall selection. So there's a lot of luck involved there with the lottery, but it definitely makes it exciting. Anyways, that'll wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. I hope you guys have a good one, and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.